Bienvenido and thank you for listening to the Word con Sazón podcast, a sermon collective of reforming Latinos. The following sermon was given at Christ Redeemer Church in Moreno Valley, California by Pastor Martin Medina. For more information about the church or the pastor, please go to our show notes below. I don't know if the Lord is coming back soon, but it is very good to see Concepcion back after a couple months. Good to see you, brother. And it's a good to see uh, Angel and Mario as well with us this morning. Good to see familiar faces. It's always a joy to be with each other and to worship the Lord together, now even to open up His Word together. We're in Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7, verse 24 through 30. And this story is actually told as well in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 15. So I'll be making references to that as well. So if you don't see that in our text as I'm preaching, it's because I'm probably pulling from Matthew, Matthew's account of the same story. But Mark chapter 7, verse 24 through 30. The word of our living God says this. And from there, he, that is Christ, arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast a demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, aren't, those, aren't there those texts, Lord, those stories, those narratives that just grip our hearts, Lord? Those texts, Lord, that really the word comes alive to our hearts as we submit ourselves to the text, Lord. Help us this hour to see what you have for us in this text, in this narrative. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. There's two words that are often used synonymously, but they are not synonyms. Sympathy and empathy. Sympathy and empathy. I've heard people use them interchangeably as if they were the same thing. So this isn't an English lecture, but sympathy is what? Sympathy is saying, seeing a situation saying, oh, that is terrible. I feel so sorry for that person enduring that. Now, people think that's empathy as well. But no, empathy, empathy is not seeing a situation and saying that's terrible. Empathy is putting yourselves in the shoes of that person, feeling the weight of that situation against you. For instance, if you watch a movie, and let's say you were in the army at some point. If I watch a movie, a war movie, I think, man, that's crazy. All those people dying, all those people suffering, people going at war. 
I can have sympathy toward the soldiers. But if a soldier watches that same movie, he's going to have empathy. Because he's going to know what it's like to be in that war. He's going to know what it's like to having, have lost brothers in arms on the battlefield. So it isn't that sympathy and empathy are the same thing. And there's actually a, a, a huge difference. And what I'm submitting this morning is that we this morning should not be happy just to sympathize with the Syrophoenician woman. Just to merely understand her case and her lot and see the suffering that she had for her little daughter. No, we should feel the weight of the text with empathy, getting into the text, becoming that desperate, pleading beggar of the text is what I'm submitting to you. So as we begin to unpack the verses and move along, don't read them as someone from afar off watching the scene take place. Be in the text. Submit yourself with the text. And let's look at the text now. Verse 24, we read it. He, from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet it could not be hidden. Christ, obviously probably exhausted from the ministry that he's been uh, enduring, all the battles with the Pharisees, the healing, the sickness that he's delivering people from, the traveling, it's nonstop. It's going, it's going. He's exhausted. He just wants a moment to rest from the labors of his ministry. For those of us who have served in any capacity of ministry, we know what he feels. Just a break, just a moment away to recover, to get some relaxation, to not have to endure the burdens of the people. But he could not be hidden. He could not be hidden in any capacity. Before we move on, this little city called Tyre and Sidon, what would be in modern day Lebanon, is a coastal city. And as if you're familiar with your Bible, you know that in the Old Testament, Tyre and Sidon were good, then they were bad, then they were good, and they were bad. A constant swinging back and forth, and they were very hostile to Jews. If you know your Old Testament, you would know that the land of Canaan was the promised land in a sense where they could not enter in, right? Because of the enemies that were there occupying the land. A little bit deeper, there's also an Old Testament account of Elijah. Elijah also encountering a Syrophoenician woman. And what does Elijah do? He also raises her little son from sickness. But this story is not about Elijah. This story is not about Tyra and Sidon. The story isn't about, even in a sense, healing the healing of the little child. No, the story is about Christ and what he's doing, and what he's done for his people. Verse 25 and 26, read us following. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her. A Canaanite woman, a Gentile woman, a Syrophoenician woman, all these things are bad in this day to a Jewish audience. I'm sorry to say it, but if women, you think you're suppressed in our day, you have no idea what it was like to be a woman in this day. To even approach a man was a sin in the eyes of the people, was a crime in the judicial courts. She was a Canaanite, a Gentile, a stranger, an alien of the things of God. She likely had never even seen Christ before. 
She likely only heard right accounts of Christ. Could you imagine being a woman who has a daughter who is tormented by a demon day and night? If you know the Bible, the demons would often pick up humans and throw them across a room. Demons would cause humans to hit themselves with chains. If you have ch children in the room this morning, picture your child being tormented by a demon. So could you imagine being this Canaanite woman as if a cancer patient heard of a doctor who has a cure out there? They run to that doctor. This woman is running to the divine doctor, not for a cure, but for a person, Christ. God incarnate, as we sing, our living hope. She hears of him. That Galilean man, he's in town. I just saw him enter a house. He's trying to be low-key. What do you think this woman says? Forget it. I don't care if he's trying to be low-key. My daughter needs to be saved from this demon. I'm going to go. Heart is motivated. Bold determination. Can you feel it this morning? She's heard about a rabbi who actually cares. A teacher who's not just caring about teaching. A teacher who's invested in the people he's teaching. A teacher who is in and amongst his people and even eating with sinners. She's heard of his power. She's heard of his kindness. She's heard of his heart of love. That Galilean man, that man from Nazareth, Jesus Christ is in my town and I have a daughter who needs him. I need him, she says. Nothing will stop her. Nothing will get in her way. Culturally, she shouldn't be doing this. She's approaching a Jewish man as a Gentile. Socially, she's a woman. She shouldn't be approaching a man from her family perspective. They're going to look at her and say, you're a Gentile. What are you doing asking help from the Jewish people? All reasons why she should not have come. And we know this feeling, right? We know the feeling. We know we need Christ. We know we need to go to him in prayer. We know that we need to plead our hearts before him. And what do we say? But what will so-and-so think? What will so-and-so think if they see me committed to the local church? What do my family think if they say, on Sunday mornings, I cannot hang out with you, family? But see, when we see our desperate need for Christ, the thoughts of mere men mean nothing because the thought of the Lord is everything about us. So she comes to him. She comes to him saying, what? Help me. Help me. My daughter is possessed. She needs deliverance. She needs a savior. She falls on her face at the feet of Jesus. Is this reverent? Yeah, it's reverent. Is it respect? Of course it's respect. But listen. She's not doing this because she's trying to be reverent nor respectful. She's doing this because she's in flat out in a position of begging and imploring the Lord of grace. I will not let you go. Maybe you can see it in your mind. She's grabbing his ankle. She's grabbing his tunic. She's holding on to something. Lord, have mercy on me, O son of David, as it says in Matthew. Have mercy on me. The Greek here actually says repeatedly, ongoing, imploring. Please have mercy on my daughter. You know how annoying she was? In Matthew's account, it says that the disciples begged Jesus that they could get rid of her. They were like, it's, it's enough. It's too much. She's causing a scene. Please let us put her out. Are we like this in prayer, dear church? Are we this dependent in prayer? Can we, like this, more, this woman, say, I don't care. I need Christ. I need my only hope. I don't care if people want to put me out because I see my need. I see my desperation. I see Christ, and I'm going to go to him. 
Are you in the text this morning? Are you empathizing, not just merely sympathizing? Can you feel the weight of this? You know that you probably left your daughter unattended. The one who could take care of her the best is here with Christ. She's begging and begging. Disciples are saying, get her out of here. She's begging and begging. Now what comes next is a complete and utter shock. See, in effect, in Matthew's account, we see Christ is silent. Christ is silent. What a dynamic scene. Maybe she's on her knees following him around because she's slipping and falling out of desperation. And he's what? He's silent. Has Christ ever felt silent to you, church? As you're begging him and imploring him and saying, Lord, deliver me from this. Lord, help me from this. Has Christ felt silent for you and to you? Is Christ being rude? Is his silence neglect on his part? I don't think so. I think there's actually an underlying truth. And we'll get to that in a second. But he finally says something. He finally says something. He says in Matthew 15, 24, I came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In a sense, he's saying, you're a Gentile. I didn't come for you. You're a Gentile. My purpose was to come to the house of the lost sheep of Israel. And yet, what does she say? She continues imploring him, Lord, help me. Lord, have mercy on me. Lord, do not pass me by as it were. And now let's read verse 27 and see what he says to her again. Verse 27, and he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. You see the buildup. You see the buildup. It's begging, silence. Begging, I came for Israel. Begging, well, don't let, we can't give the food that's for children to the dogs. I mean, seriously, she's begging. He's silent. He's throwing herself at him. And she's still saying, he's still saying, it's not for you. I can't give the food that I have for the children, Israel, to dogs. If you know that dogs, that term was used for the Gentiles. So theologically, we understand that salvation comes to the Jew first and then to the Greek. We know that in Romans 11, it says that Israel's disbelief and unbelief had to occur in a sense that the Gentiles might be grafted in. But even this is a response rooted in love. The silence. This statement. Right? How is it rooted in love? I don't understand. He's turning her away. She needs him. She's imploring him. And he's saying nothing. And then he's giving her a statement of not yet, in a sense. This is why. It's because there's seasons of our life, dear church. There's seasons of our, of our life where Christ will be silent. There's seasons of our life where even the response that he gives us is not the response that we want. There's seasons of our life where his answer to our prayer is the last thing we wanted to hear. Why? Why? Because the silence and the statements and the answers are made and designed to draw out of us more faith. To draw out of us more trust. In effect, in his silence, what he's saying is, do you really love me? Do you really feel your need of me? Do you really trust me? Do you really admit that I know what's best? See, Christ will solicit from his people the mindset of, 
Where else can I go, Lord? Where else can I go? This woman, she's likely tried the other doctors. She's likely tried the voodoo doctors of her day. She couldn't go to the Pharisees. They would have thrown her out. She's literally at the only person that can help her. So his silence, her statements, to her she thinks, I don't care. Stay silent. I don't care if the children, the food that you have for the children is not given to me directly because I have nowhere else to go. That is what Christ is doing in church, church this morning in your life. If you feel as though there's silence from, the, from your prayers, silence when you plead to the Lord, have the same mentality as this woman. Where else can I go, Lord? You alone can rescue. You alone can save. You alone can grow me. You alone can heal me. You alone can change me. You alone can deliver me out of the darkness. You alone can help my financial struggles. Christ will always draw out a deeper sense of your helplessness before he just delivers his pr- on his prayer that second. The waiting, the searching the scriptures to see if there's a promise in there for me, the remaining at the feet of our Lord, all that is character building. All that is designed to show us we can trust him. Though he's silent, though his answers aren't what I want, I can trust him. In verse 28, look at her response. But she answered him, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. She doesn't complain. She doesn't qualify. She doesn't begin to say, well, that's not fair. There's plenty of food on the table. Give me a meal. She doesn't grow downcast. She doesn't leave and say, well, I guess that's just how it's going to be then. She doesn't grow envious of Israel. She doesn't begin to want the favor that they have or the blessings that God has given them. No, she just is continuing to look at her own soul. Her, her response is actually powerful. She persists to say, even so, Christ, even so, you're my only hope. The Pharisees missed this. God's covenant people missed this. But this Gentile woman, no, what does she say? I know you love Gentiles. Though the time is not yet, I know that you're in your plan, you still will be a light to the Gentiles as it is, as it is written in Isaiah. The power of those words, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. The power of agreeing with God's perfect will. Not my time yet? That's fine. The light to the Gentiles not come? Okay, that's fine. But even the crumbs will do, God. Even the crumbs that fall from the Messiah's table. Even the crumbs that Israel just throws away because they don't really care about the Messiah. I'll take those crumbs, Lord. Are we that hungry for Christ is my question this morning. Do we, are we willing to even have crumbs of grace? What powerful biblical faith here and even Christ in the account of Matthew says the same thing. He's impressed with her faith. He calls her to have great faith. Why? Because she's laying a hold of the truth in Christ. And we see in verses 29 and 30 the result. And he said to her, For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in a bed and the demon gone. 
She receives mercy. The work is done. Christ has spoken. She doesn't say, well, come with me. I need you to see my daughter. I need you to lay hands on my daughter. No, even here we see her faith. Even here we see her trust of Messiah. She takes God at his word. She takes the word of Christ and says, you said it, I believe you. You said you will do it, I trust you. I'll walk home in faith. Church, are we that confident in the word of the Lord? Do we take God at his word like this? Do we trust Christ like this? When Christ says in his word the promises that he has for us, do we by faith lay hold of him? Would we in this scene walk home in confidence knowing that our daughter was healed? Fear, of course. Uncertainty, walking home on the dusty streets. Yeah, I'm sure she was wondering, oh man, it, can it be so? Is this really going to happen? Am I going to go home and see my daughter there? Saved, healed. Yes, because she trusted the one who was faithful and his word was faithful. Now, of course, we just read this and we think, cool story, right? But imagine, imagine what it would have been like for you to go home that day and to see your daughter delivered from the demon that was possessing her. Hearing the story a thousand times, mom, tell me again what he said. Mom, tell me again how he said it. Mom, tell me again what it was like when you were begging him. Mom, what was the room like? Tell me about Christ. Tell me how he saved me. Tell me how he was able from a, a far distance to just have the power to say she's delivered. Dear believers and unbelievers in this room, that's all I want for you this morning is to see the power and the glory of Christ to save and to believe on him. Listen, all of humanity, all of us in this room are like this woman's daughter in bondage to sin and the enemy. And Christ can save us. Many of us in this room can say Christ has saved me. With his death on the cross, he paid my debt. With his perfect life, he gives me his merit into heaven. With his resurrection, he leads me to glory. And so we come to Christ. We came to Christ. But this morning, this morning our Christ isn't still walking the dusty streets of Tyre and Sidon. No, this morning, Christian, our Christ, our Christ is in power and glory, the resurrected Messiah. That's our Christ this morning, ruling and reigning from his throne, sending forth his spirit. We are on this side of the tomb, dear church. May we not have little faith, but may our faith emulate the faith of this woman. So our application is just that. What is real faith? What does real faith look like? In Christianity, in evangelicalism at large, you hear people say something to the effect of, well, I know I'm okay because I just have faith. I have faith. Well, that's not really that good. Everyone has faith. Everyone has faith. Everyone, in a sense, is walking and exercising and living by faith. So the Bible doesn't actually give us a theological definition of faith, but we see descriptions of faith, attributes of faith. This woman's faith shows us that her faith was not just in anything. Her faith was in someone. So the first dynamic or attribute of faith is what? Real faith has a sense of need and desperation. 
That's the essence of true faith, is a desperate need of Christ and a desperate dependence upon him. See, in this scene, we see sickness brought this woman to Christ. Her daughter's demon possession brought her to Christ. If she had not seen that great need, if she had not seen the great need that she had of Christ, she would have never have come. She would have gone on, in a sense, living her life because there was no need to come. So this morning, my question is, is your faith a faith that senses your deep need and helplessness? Is your faith a faith that is saying, in and of myself, I have nothing. In and of myself, I only have sin and darkness. I have a great need. Listen, you will never become a true Christian, nor will you grow as a Christian until you see your deep need of Christ. Until we realize the help that we need from Christ. We spoke last week about the evil heart. Who can deliver our evil heart? Can we go in there and change things up? No, we need Christ to go and give us a new heart. That's a deep and real faith. A faith that says, I need you, Christ. I cannot live rightly on my own. I can't do enough works to please you. I need you, Christ. So when we see our helplessness, in our desperate condition, it should drive us to Christ. But another dynamic of faith is that faith should be rooted in the biblical Christ. Faith should be rooted on right reports around Christ. It's not just enough to see sin and desperation and think that Christ is some genie who just gives you whatever you want. No, it's seeing our sin, seeing our desperation, seeing our helplessness, and then seeing the biblical Christ. What caused her to come to Christ? Because she heard right reports about him. She calls him son of David. Maybe she herself said, I'm going to check out this Old Testament. Who is this son of David? Who is this man from Galilee? So right reports about Christ. We're not just saying have faith in a random man named Jesus from 2,000 years ago. No, what we're saying is see the biblical Christ. The one who can save, the one who was Messiah, the Son of God Himself. That's what brought her here. So we as a church, I as the preacher, do you no service if I give you a false Christ. If I give you a Christ who was not in accordance with the Scriptures. I could grow this church to 2,000 if I just say things like, Christ wants you to be millionaires. Christ never wants you to suffer again. Christ is going to have beach houses and da-da-da-da-da. That's not the biblical Christ, though. So what we need at this church is to have a deep sense of our desperate need of Christ. But then we need the void to be filled with the biblical Christ, not a false, phony Christ. And that's point number three. Our faith is in that biblical Christ, not in ourselves. Because when we look at faith, right, this is really important. People say, I have faith, I have faith. Well, our faith is weak, dear church. Our faith is often shaky. So what we should be saying is, I have faith in Christ. It's not my faith that saves me. It's in who my faith is in that saves me. See, what saved this woman's daughter? Was it her faith? No, Christ saved this woman's daughter. It's in who her faith was in that saved her daughter. She's trusting in God, not her own faith. So the deeper that our view of our helplessness gets, the deeper that our view of the biblical Christ gets, you know what will grow deeper as well? Our faith. 
the I heard it been said that as the object of our faith grows, faith too will grow with it. But if you have little views of God, you will have a little faith. I know this because what was the size of the grace that was given to this woman this morning? It was a crumb. In fact, in the Greek, it was a crumb of a crumb. The little crumbs that break off from the smaller pieces. So it's a deep sense of our need. It's a deep sense of needing Christ. It's a deep sense of our faith growing in Christ, of the biblical Christ. But even here, we see that even the smallest amount of grace is enough. We should never despise grace of any size. We should never say, well, Lord, thank you for the crumb, but give me more. No, we should accept any Christ. But what I'm saying this morning is some of us, sadly, some of us are living on the faith the size of a crumb. When we have a meal, a feast to choose from, we're sustaining our Christian life with crumbs. Listen, we're not a Gentile woman 2,000 years ago. We're on this side of the Bible being finished. We're on this side of the resurrection. We're on this side of glory, as it were, from the scriptures. So my question is, why are you depending on grace to sustain you when you have meals upon meals upon meals in the word of the living God? Why are you depending on the grace falling in the size of a crumb when we could be opening the word and giving ourselves and our souls a feast to treasure, a feast to meditate on? If the grace of a crumb was enough for this woman, dear church, you have more than this woman has. If you're a Christian, you have the spirit living inside of you. You have the word accessible to you. You know how hard it was to read the, the, the Torah back then? Only the Torah was available inside synagogues. You had to go to church to read the Bible. Some of us had the Bible on our phones, seven different copies of the scriptures, and we don't even open it. Why are we depending on the size of a crumb when we can actually feast and lay, lay hold of Christ by faith? And lastly, all these elements together show us the power, the power of faith in prayer. As we said here, we don't see her complaining. We don't see her feeling any type of downcast or ignored. No, what does she do? She does not give up and she implores him. So church, by faith in Christ, the biblical Christ, what I'm asking you this morning is to be bold in your, before the throne of grace, to be bold in your prayers, to be bold in your approach to the throne. I often hear Christians pray such tiny little prayers. Lord, if you could just do this, right? If you could just, no, listen. We have a storehouse in heaven, the omnipotent God for us. And when we operate on true faith, we can say big prayers. In fact, when I see people pray such little prayers, I think they probably have a little view of God. Because if you had the biblical view of God, the omnipotent God, the, the God who says nothing can stay my hand, the God that says, is anything too hard for me? The God who healed this daughter from afar. If you had faith in that biblical God, I know you'd be throwing up prayers that were mighty and powerful, that would cause revival in our hearts, in our churches, in our cities, that would cause real growth in our Christian life. So what I'm saying this morning is to have a giant faith and to exercise that desperate faith in, God, in Christ. 
to use God's word even as this woman used God's word in a sense in, in her prayers. There's a, a, a verse that says that the violent take heaven by storm. You know what that means? It means that those that have a giant view of God in their prayers, they take heaven by storm because they go and they lay a hold of the, of the throne of grace and they say, Lord, like this woman, I will not let you go. Until you do this, Lord. Your word says that you would grow me. I'm going to hold you to that, Lord. Your word says that you would preserve me, that you'd give me everything that I need in this life to, to survive. I'm going to hold you to that, Lord. Your word says that not only will you justify me, but you'll sanctify me. I'm going to hold you to that, Lord. You see what I'm saying? You're, you're, the word says that I'm able to now treat others in a way as I would want to be treated. I'm going to hold you to that, Lord. And so we pray God's word back to him in faith, laying hold of that, holding God to his word. And we'll see, we'll see the effect of prayer in our lives. Some of us this morning, like this woman, have family concerns. We see children that are sick, children that are depressed. We see our life as financial hardship. Our marriages might be suffering. Our children's character, we're worried about them. Our job situation, whatever it is, what I'm saying is the Lord wants to hear your heart in prayer for those things. There's nothing too big, but listen, there's also nothing too small for the Lord. This woman, she felt her great need. She saw her great need. Every single day she saw her daughter demon-possessed. And what did she say? That man can help me and I'm going to that man and no one will stop me. And I won't leave that man until he saves my daughter. Be like that in prayer. Go to Christ and say, I will not leave you until you answer this prayer according to your will, O Lord. We have a giant God who's able to do great things for us, Lord. Church, but pray to him. Go to him by faith, laying hold of his word, laying hold of Christ. And I promise you, we'll begin to see our faith grow. Why? Because our faith in the one who is powerful and glorious and strong and able has grown. That's how faith grows. That's how prayers get answered. When we begin to see him for who he is and pray accordingly. Church, may we be a praying church with a giant faith. Let's pray. Lord, what would it be like, Father, if we actually exercise our faith in who you are and who you said you are in your word, Lord? What would that look like in our families, in our homes, in our marriages, in our cities, in our churches, Lord? If we prayed in a way that resembled this woman's faith, Lord, help us. Help us as we begin to see our desperate need and as we begin to see the one who could feel that desperate need, the biblical Christ, and as our faith grows because of that, Lord, help us to pray to your name in power and in spirit and in truth. In Christ's name, amen. amen.